Welcome to episode 12 of We Muse Aloud, a podcast where anonymous voices share their thoughts on a theme within a dreamscape of music and ambient sound. This episode is about grandparents. There are only three contributing voices this time, our fewest ever, and each will tell us what they know and remember about the parent of one of their parents. As always, We Muse Aloud is best enjoyed with headphones. Whether or not you enjoy it with a grandparent depends on your own situation, and possibly your preference. And now, step off the edge of your daily concerns and levitate into the ether. Close your eyes. Rise and float into episode 12. Grandparents. Grandfather was a, a really playful guy. She was five foot two, I guess, and like a kind of like a lovely, like roly poly, soft, squishy grandmother. My grandfather is a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he was born in Berlin, Germany, in 1925. Uh, just uh, he, he really liked playing with words. Uh, he, he always seemed to sort of be in a good mood, cheerful. Um, he, he really liked games and, and languages. Uh, he was a classics teacher, so that, uh, I know the question is like who he was, sort of like who his personality was, but uh, a lot of that is based on like what he did and how he lived. Uh, she grew up on a farm, um, like really old timey farm where they pretty much had one of everything through the depression, like she actually, took a horse-drawn sleigh to get to uh, high school in town. Uh, and she was a teacher. And when she first started teaching, her first classroom she taught in was a one-room schoolhouse, just because everything kind of moves a little slower in the country. So even though there, there was a school that was opening up in town, all these one-room schoolhouses were still happening. Uh, and he's still alive. He's 91 and a half years old, and he's still going. Uh, and amazingly enough, he's still mentally coherent. So when you're talking to him, you don't feel like you're talking to a guy who's nearly a century old. He's um, He's almost more mentally there than some people I've met who are in their 70s. So he's, he's doing amazing for his age. Um, so he was born in Germany right before Hitler came to power. Uh, and he spent all of his childhood in hiding in Germany and uh, France. Um, eventually he was able to immigrate to the United States and he settled in the Boston area and he was an accountant for uh, a big hotel chain there. Um, and in many ways he's sort of exactly how you'd picture uh, an old German grandfather to be. Uh, he has this um, thick German accent, sort of like a, a teddy bear type personality. He loves whiskey. Um, being German, he's very, very organized and good at math and just 
keeping track of things, you know, making sure no stone is left unturned. Um, he was, uh, disabled, I suppose. It's weird saying it in, in, in some ways. Uh, he had, uh, he got polio at a young age, so that all, like, also informed who he was as far as how I knew him. Um, he apparently was really uh, an athletic guy, and even even though he had crutches, he was still he was still very active doing stuff. I remember growing up north as a kid, he would dig ditches even though he was on crutches. He would just you know it'd take him a long time, but he would just hack at the ground and uh, clear ground. Uh, I think about when he was 21, he rode a bicycle to Montreal with some friends. So like he was like, that's like pretty elite athleticism. Um, and he, yeah, I guess shortly after that, he got polio. So that definitely changed his, uh, his life completely. Yeah, he got in his 20s. Um, he was at a Grenadier Park or Grenadier Pond at High Park. And uh, he was swimming there um, with some of his friends, and he was, uh, you know, being a being a trickster, being a joker, and uh, uh, taking the water into his mouth and shooting it up in the air like an ale, like a whale, <laughs> like an ale, uh, like a whale. Um, and um, he he was just playing around, and uh, I think it was uh, the next day he felt really sick and just uh, went to bed, couldn't get out and then tried walking and was having all these problems walking. And uh, yeah, he, he got polio from bacteria that was in the pond and uh, uh, one of his legs was severely affected. So pretty much like he lost a lot of the muscle in his leg and some of the muscle in his hands. Uh, so she was a teacher, very actively involved in her church, the Presbyterian church. She loved to quilt. Uh, and she also edited poetry for, for a variety of different independent authors. And our local paper as well. She was an editor in the local paper. And, you know, when you meet him now, you'd never really guess that he has this extensive and kind of horrifying trauma background. Uh, and it's only when you talk to him and you learn more about his life and his childhood, I think that you're kind of amazed by the person he ended up becoming, which is a pretty grounded, loving, functional human being. And, uh, but he was never in a wheelchair until very late in his life. He always, uh, he had braces on his legs, so it was very important for him to stand upright and use crutches. But uh, yeah, he was, he would still go out and do things all the time. He was, yeah, he was just very, I always sort of felt like he, uh, as a kid, he always had something for me, like either like a like a trick or a joke or uh, or something uh, something silly to say. Like it was, it was always uh, always always look forward to that. So I was I was standing in her in her hallway, and I'm crying really hard, and I'm like six years old, and and when I cry really hard, this thing happens where you like make this. <laughs> noise where you kind of start to hyperventilate and I, I can't stop making this noise and I feel a tightness in my chest. So uh, she takes me over to the piano and she takes a pencil and she draws on her piano like all of the different letters 
And I remember like being puzzled of like, she totally forgot the letter H. Uh, and she, she wheels this little wheelie stool that was like our piano stool, like up high enough. So when she sets me on it, I can reach the keys. And on this like sheet music that's in front of us, she's written a series of corresponding letters. And it's the beginning part of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And she takes my little finger and then she sings it as she shows me how to, how to plunk all of the keys. And then eventually she gets me doing it myself. And, and through that, uh, because it was our favorite shared song, I, I was focusing on what I was doing and she got me to make my breath longer to make all the notes go together. And before I knew it, I was breathing normal again. I had stopped crying and I had, I had this like beautiful piece of magic. A memory I have of my grandfather, um, I must have been eight or nine years old and we were driving one night. Uh, I was in the back seat, my grandpa was driving and my grandma was in the passenger seat and we got pulled over. I, I don't remember why, but suddenly we were on the side of the road and the police cruiser was behind us and its lights were flashing and beaming into our car. And the police officer walks up to my grandfather's side of the car and taps on the window for him to roll it down. And I remember sitting there and my grandpa just didn't move. He just sat there staring straight ahead and didn't react to the cop telling him to put his window down. And my grandma had to nudge him and say, hey, put the window down. And so he eventually did. And I, I don't remember exactly what him and the police officer talked about, but the, the police officer was asking him questions and uh, asked for his license, his registration. It was sort of a, a typical traffic stop. But what I remember about it was that my grandpa, something was different about him. He never looked at the police officer and he really wasn't responding to him either. He was just staring straight ahead and when he had to get his, his license, um, it, the cop had to ask him like three times to do it and when he had to get his registration, he, he basically couldn't get the glove compartment open and I knew something was wrong, that he wasn't acting normally. This wasn't him. He's a very put together, uh, capable person and suddenly it was it was almost as if he was sick or, or something was just mentally not there and the police officer started to get agitated and asked what was wrong with him uh, basically he was I think I think the police officer was feeling like my grandfather was disrespecting him and that he wasn't answering his questions he wasn't doing what he was being told to do and my grandma eventually leaned over and she said to him, officer, you have to understand, he's a Holocaust survivor. He's traumatized. He doesn't like interacting with police officers. It scares him because when he was growing up, the authority figures in his life basically were Nazis um, and they were trying to kill him. So he gets very intimidated by police officers and he shuts down. He's not trying to be disrespectful, he's traumatized. And I remember sitting there watching this whole thing, watching my grandma explain my grandpa's trauma to this police officer. And this police officer, I don't really think knew what to do with this information. He just, you know, I mean, what was he supposed to do? Um, 
and I don't exactly remember how the rest of it unfolded. You know, maybe my grandpa got a ticket, maybe he didn't, I don't know. Eventually we drove away though. And I just remember my grandfather being completely silent for the rest of the drive. And we got back to his house and I was staying overnight with them. And basically the rest of the night, um, you know, my grandma gave me a movie to watch and I just sort of hung out and watched TV while my grandpa, I don't even know where he went. He was just somewhere else in the house. I didn't see him, I didn't talk to him and my grandma was pretty much taking care of him all night. I used to, he taught me how to play chess, or at least I think he taught me. I don't know, the memory, <laughs> the memory is, uh, is, a, is a tricky thing, but uh, yeah, we used to play these long games of chess, and um, I remember as a kid just like always getting my ass kicked. And I remember once I was so close to, to beating him, I was so very close, and um, I thought, oh, this is the time I finally, I finally get to beat him. And then, it, then I didn't, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I was all, all, almost there. But uh, yeah, he was—he he did a good job of, of the balance of between uh, not letting not letting you win, but still uh, keeping it competitive. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's a uh, it, it's a uh, memory's just a, a soup. She was a single mom, so uh, when my dad was about two years old, her husband died of a heart attack. And at that time, she was a stay-at-home mom raising three kids. Uh, they were living on a farm, and they were kind of like a very much an independent farm. So they had their own chickens. They were kind of making everything from scratch at that time. And when this happened, she went back to being a teacher. And at this time, the school had opened in town, so she was a teacher in town. And my, my dad's siblings were much older than he was, so eventually, they were gone out starting their own families a lot of well he was growing up so it was just her and him for a lot of it uh he has stories about her being really gung-ho about a lot of his endeavors he was really into cars and he talked about like souping up their family car and her trying to drive it with these big fat racing tires on it but just just so excited for him yeah, having these experiences yeah souping up their car there's this funny story that uh, he tells where he and his buddies used to, when they would see each other's vehicle coming, they would recognize each other. So they would cross over to the opposite side of the street and pass each other in ways that they weren't supposed to. But my grandmother actually like driving the car, going to the grocery store, and these people thinking that it was my dad driving and like pulling out of the same lane. And they're just like flipping out, being like, you can't do this anymore. I think my, I think my mom related to him a lot as as a role model as far as as the importance of knowledge but to, to nail down concrete things it's, it's pretty tough um, I don't know if I know that much yeah what I know about how my grandfather was as a parent to my mom was that he was a pretty awful parent. Um, my mom always said to me he was a much better grandparent than he was a parent. She's never really gotten into details of what it was like growing up with him, but what she has told me was that he was uh, emotionally neglectful, 
Um, he was incredibly strict. Uh, it was sort of my way or the highway. And he was often pretty unreasonable and controlling. Um, an example I can give uh, that my mom did tell me was that when she was little, she said she must have only been like three or four years old. Um, if she was uh, misbehaving or she was bad or, you know, her, her dad was just angry with her about something, um, the only way he knew to handle those types of things, the only real consequence he knew to be effective was he'd put her in her crib and he would tape her hands to the railing so she was like stuck there um, as a way to sort of, in his mind, I think he thought he was like settling her and grounding her and saying, you know, sit there and think about what you've done. But for a three or four year old child, that's a, a terrifying experience. Um, which is interesting when I hear those things about him because the way I know him throughout my life is I could never imagine him doing something like that. I've only known him as an extremely loving and generous person. Um, but I think the difference is that at the time I knew him, basically when I came into the world, at that time in his life, he had done significant work in coping with his past trauma and beginning to resolve it and uh, I guess become a mentally healthier person. Um, when my mom was growing up, <clears throat> he, <clears throat> never talked about his childhood. All my mom knew about him was that he was from Germany, he had survived the Holocaust, and literally that was it, the, the details. He never talked about it, no one ever brought it up. It was a very hush-hush sort of thing. Um, and what my mom knows about my grandpa looking back was that, you know, it's not that he was a mean guy or that he wanted to hurt his kids, it's that he didn't know how to be a parent because he didn't have parents growing up. He was an orphan and he was in hiding and his father was uh, imprisoned in a concentration camp and it, this all happened when he was incredibly young. And so he didn't have good role models growing up and he lived uh, such an unstable childhood um, and such a scary childhood that by the time he was an adult and suddenly he had two kids of his own, he had no idea what being a father was. Um, and also because of his trauma, he became a very controlling person, which makes sense because controlling his environment was sort of how he kept himself safe. That's the only way he knew how to be safe was to control everything. and that's really how he kept himself alive all those years in Europe. And so as a parent, I guess he was pretty horrible. Um, and what's interesting to me is that years and years later, uh, when he was, uh, my mom was an adult and he was elderly, he actually sat down with her and he told her all this and he apologized to my mom and said, you know, I was a bad father because I didn't know how to be a father because look at the life I had. Uh, he tried writing his own language and uh, alphabet. Uh, he was a, a classics teacher, a high school teacher. He taught Latin and I think he spoke or at least somewhat spoke or knew parts of I think about seven languages. So yeah, I think at one point in his life 
because uh, so much of his life, um, because he lacked mobility, was internal. Um, so he would just spend hours in his study making collages or and reading books or trying to write his own language. So the idea of, and I, I think at one point even he was, he was thinking of it as um, just a, a way to amalgamate. And I don't even know how, how serious he was about it as if it was just a hobby or um, if it was uh, something that he actually thought that <laughs> people would be interested in learning as a as a substitute but um yeah that uh, that's a it's an interesting idea as far as um an exercise to do with your mind it's i guess you know we they, he didn't have call of duty so i guess like what like you know we have we have these blocks of time that i think um living in a society where we do have the luxury of free time and and sort of at least think to ourselves that we do need downtime or time to ourselves. So it's sort of like, what do we do with it? Well, if you don't have video games and you got a lot of got a lot of language books, maybe that's what you do. Uh, my grandmother, she loved to sing. She would sing for people's weddings. Uh, she was very active in the church choir. It was it was something that she started doing when she was really young. She told me about her first solo that she had when she was at high school. Now she practiced it so much that she lost her voice, but music was kind of the thing that, that drew us together. We really bonded over that. Especially when I was going to musical theater school, I would call her all the time to like hear my harmonies or, yeah, I would say music for sure. The thing my grandpa has done that most interests me uh, was his time spent in the U.S. Army in World War II. So um, he immigrated to Ellis Island in New York City when he was 17. And the only way he could get U.S. citizenship and avoid being deported back to Germany was if he enlisted in the army. So he did that, and he was actually recruited into a what at the time was a, a top-secret military project that only became public about like 10 years ago. Um, and if you've ever seen the movie uh, *Inglorious Bastards*, it's it's sort of like that. So what the army was doing was they were recruiting European refugees. Uh, who were predominantly Jewish um, and they were training them in psychological warfare to be interrogators and the reason they were doing that was because these refugees had uh, like an intimate knowledge of European languages and culture and I guess the, the idea was being Jews they were motivated to fight um, so my grandpa was <laughs> not by choice he was recruited into this program and he got trained at a secret facility in Maryland that to this day he doesn't know where it is because they blindfolded him when they took him there he just knows it was in Maryland um, and he was trained to be an interrogator there and then he um, deployed in Europe under General Patton and they landed in Normandy and sort of worked their way through Europe and essentially whenever they captured an enemy his job was to get as much information as possible out of them and um, it's it's funny talking to him now he he says his favorite technique was to uh, hand someone two pieces of wood and tell them to make a cross and start digging um, and it, it, it's funny when he tells these stories, he's sitting there with his glass of whiskey and he says, you know, you make someone dig their own grave and you'd be surprised uh, how much they start talking. Um, I think though, the thing that, sorry, the thing that most fascinates me about him was 
<clears throat> when he was in the army, he liberated uh, the Buchenwald concentration camp, which was one of the major death camps. And he describes that as one of the more significant moments in his life. And the more I've thought about it, 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 it's sort of interesting to me because he was both on the outside and the inside of that, you know? So he was on the outside because he was an American soldier, but he was also on the inside because these were his people. They were European Jews. Um, and this was a fate he had narrowly escaped. And I think what interests me most about that moment was, <laughs> what interests me most about that, that moment in his life was that it's like he was there and he was German. I mean, culturally he was German, that's where he'd grown up, but technically he wasn't German because the Nuremberg laws had taken his citizenship away. But also technically he was American because he'd been granted citizenship being in the army, but really he wasn't American. I mean, that, that was the country he had spent so little time in and he had no roots there. He didn't even really know anyone there. And so here he is in this place that I sort of wonder, was he always kind of destined to be there? I mean, if you think about it, he was born a Jewish boy in Berlin in 1925. The statistical likelihood was he would end up in a camp at some point. I mean, it was, it was sort of a hard thing to avoid. And so in some ways it's like he ended up exactly where he was supposed to be but he just took a very different route to get there that no one could have predicted. And then it's, I, it's sort of like, well, was this a good thing or a bad thing? Because on one hand, it was a good thing because, because of him, a lot of people didn't die who otherwise might have. He saved a lot of people that day. But I think it's also, there's a downside to what he did because in his own words, part of him was destroyed that day. And he describes it as, you know, when you see something like that, you never fully recover from it. I'm told that uh, physically I have the same hands as him and apparently I have the same sneeze as him. Um, I think I have my sense of theatricality comes from him as well. And, uh, I don't know, I really like riding my bike. I ride my bike for hours, so I haven't quite made it to Montreal, but, uh, hey, <laughs> time's not over yet. Uh, I drink a lot of tea. I'd say I'm like her because I drink a lot of tea. Um, it's funny, you, you start to realize how much someone has had an impact on you when you start to think about them. And then you watch yourself and, and little mannerisms or sayings will come out and you're like, oh wow, that's my grandmother right there. Uh, I like to say heavens to Betsy a lot. That's, I, I'm taking that from her for sure. Um, also, uh, love of music, also a good book. My grandmother, I think, was the only other person in my family who was really into reading as much as I was. She, she read everything Lucy Mon Montgomery ever wrote. I probably read Anne of Green Gables more years than I've been alive. Uh, yeah, so, and Emily of New Moon, she was, she was always reading, especially Reader's Digest, really into the digest. 
I think the way I most like my grandpa is we're both very cautious people. Um, I wouldn't say we're um, afraid or, or scared all the time, but I think we're both very prudent about things when, when it comes to uh, doing things that we're maybe not used to or we're not 99% sure what the outcome is going to be. We like to be very careful and stop and think and just sort of piece through everything and really weigh out all of our options and then make the best decision. Um, he has a really good reason for being like that. I, I don't, but I, I think that's a trait I picked up from him. Um, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, finances or when it comes to major life decisions or e even e even smaller decisions, actually, like smaller day-to-day -day decisions, you know, what to order off a restaurant menu, um, which restaurant to go to, uh, things like that. Um, and I think because of our cautious nature, we both sort of always keep in mind the worst possible outcome. Um, I don't think my grandfather in his adult life has ever been late to one thing ever. I just can't imagine him ever being late to something. He's just that type of guy. And I'm sort of the same way. I sort of, I treat whenever I need to be somewhere, if I need to be at work or I need to be at a family gathering, anywhere I need to be, in my mind, if I'm not 15 minutes early, I'm late. Um, and so, that's, I think, what I inherited from him. We both have kind of a cautious, observant, you know, let's look before we leap type nature. Uh, there are moments that I see differently. I remember very distinctly talking to her on the phone when she was about to move into assisted living. And I was, I was in New York at the time, so I wasn't around for it, but I was, I was talking to her a lot on the phone. And I remember hearing this like sadness in her voice and trying to cheer her up and, and saying things like, Gramsci, like, well, you're just gonna be like me. You're gonna, it's like moving into residence, you know, you're gonna have all of these people around. You're gonna get to play games or have dance parties or have roommates, like it's an exciting thing. I think I saw it as like an exciting thing that was happening to her and, and she saw it as once you go into assisted living, you don't come out. And then I didn't, I didn't piece that together. For me in my mind, it was like a temporary thing. I think in that moment, she was very aware of her expiry date and I viewed her as immortal. I think I've always had a pretty well-rounded understanding of who my grandpa is, so I wouldn't say it's um, changed as an adult. Uh, from a very young age, I knew sort of what his background was and what he had been through. Uh, it wasn't kept a secret for me. Um, as I've gotten older, though, I think one thing I do understand better is that he himself has continued to grow and become a different person as he ages and his relationship with me I think is very different from the rest of my family. Um, my mom always said to me that she thinks uh, he sort of saw me as his second chance at being a dad um, because in many ways he really failed as a dad to his own kids. Um, 
an example of that is uh, when I moved away to go to grad school, um, I went and had dinner with him the day before. And when I left his house, he uh, gave me a note he had written me uh, and it just said, you know, good luck, you'll do great, have fun. And he signed it, I love you. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, but what my mom said when she saw it was, she said, Alex, you need to understand he never says or writes I love you to anyone, not even me. And it, that's how my grandpa is. He, he's just not really a feelings type of person. And it doesn't mean he doesn't love people. He loves his family more than anything, but he doesn't express that to them. He doesn't really know how to. Yet with me, he will. Um, or whenever we see each other, we give each other a hug and he always kisses me on the cheek. He doesn't really do that with anyone else. So I think what I've come to understand is that he has always felt a very special connection to me. Um, not saying he thinks I'm better than the rest of the family, but I think him and I have always shared a unique bond that I maybe didn't understand when I was little because I, you know, I knew he had been through all these things as a kid, um, but it really wasn't until I was older that I could see he sort of maybe saw me as a second chance at getting it right and being that loving person he never could be before because he didn't know how to be. Um, I think that's what I understand better about him now is that you know, throughout his life he never stopped trying to become a better person and maybe in some ways he noticed that a little too late, but you know, He's 91 and still doing it, so <laughs> there's that. Um, well, he passed away when I was uh, when I was a teenager, so I think in some ways my my thoughts and, and memories of him have, have stayed relatively static. Um, I guess. Oh, uh, there there are maybe maybe a few things. I, I guess um, the idea will will just sort of. There are things that he accomplished that, that uh, I, I, he accomplished at a far younger age than I've accomplished as far as um, he, you know, he became a teacher and, and had, a, had a good career at that. And this is all, this is all with like not being an able-bodied person. Um, he had a wife and a family and just dating is hard alone. Like, and, and so uh, just to think that like, um, just uh, to conquer all those obstacles is, is just pretty damn impressive and and uh, I, I think in a lot of ways I'm pretty impressed with that but uh, yeah I, I think because he died it, it, it stayed just sort of my thoughts of him stayed pretty pretty static and um, he I actually he was the first person I saw dead so that was um that was something in itself, and I, I saw him a few hours after he died, so it really sort of gave me a sense of he was such a full, full person in his energy and his liveliness that um, he died, and my mom really wanted my sister and I to go go see him like right after and I think it was a really good experience to give us an understanding of, of uh, death I think I was about 17 18 I don't really know and just seeing just seeing him lying there it's like oh this is 
it was it was almost shocking that it didn't um, upset me more because I was like, oh, this is this isn't him. This is this is a shell. Like I really got that feeling, and um, just because he like the the energy that was him was just gone, and I was like, oh, okay. It just made it very. It made me understand why people sort of need that kind of closure sometimes to to see a body. Um, but as far as so, in, in some ways, he he taught me. Even though he'd been dead for a few hours, just that experience taught me a great lesson. But yeah, I'd say there's pretty much. I still remember him through the eyes of of the child I was and the teenager. My grandmother had talked about uh, her funeral when I was when I was just before I was leaving for school. She decided to sit me down. And very begrudgingly, I didn't want to talk about it, but she she sat down and she, she took me through everything that was going to happen. And and because I'm funny and she's funny, eventually we got to like riffing and I was teasing her about the casket that she had picked, which is, you know, in hindsight, very morbid. But in in the moment, it was, it was very beautiful and, and it took a while to get to the humor, but once we got there... Uh, so I was joking about how she was going to go to the grave in this deluxe ride and she added on to it like, oh yes dear, and, and I'm going to go into a solid box of gold. And we thought that was absolutely hilarious and I continued to tease her about that. And when it came time for her funeral, I, I always thought that I would sing or I would give a speech or something, but I, I just couldn't. I, I felt really really off about that, but there was, there was no way I was going to be able to get any words out. So I was made a pallbearer, I think because my aunt knew that I just needed to carry her. And, uh, and even though it's only supposed to be my male cousins, I think she was also aware of how I would feel about the gender politics surrounding that. Um, so when we, we got to the, her graveside and I have like the weight of my grandmother, you know, I'm trying to hold my head high through all the tears. And when we put her on those like those green belts that you set the casket on, that they lower into the burial vault. And then all of a sudden I just start laughing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hold in my laughter. When you hold in, try to hold in your laughter. When you're not supposed to laugh, it just makes it more violent. So eventually I'm laughing my head off because I look down and I realize that the burial vault that she's going into is solid cement, but it's been spray painted gold. She like really is going into a solid gold box. And I just thought, you know, that's, that's her, that's her. Yeah. This episode's contributing voices are in line more. Gillian Welsh and Alex Rubin. If you are enjoying We Muse Aloud, please share it with someone you love. Please share something with someone you love as often as possible. This podcast is only one option. It would be very much appreciated if you would subscribe to We Muse Aloud on iTunes, where you can also rate and review us. Follow us on Twitter at We Muse Aloud. And like us at facebook.com slash we muse aloud. At age 12, 
when Andre the Giant was already too big to comfortably ride the bus to his elementary school in rural France, his family's neighbor, Irish playwright Samuel Beckett, would drive him there in his truck. Years later, Andre recalled that they mainly talked about cricket. They weren't related, but it was a very grandfatherly thing for Mr. Beckett to do.